through the season of Lent together, we've been focusing on this theme of naming reality. Lent invites us to face and name the realities of our lives, both the light and the darkness, the healing and the brokenness, the help and the helplessness, the comfort and the fear. Reality may be painful, may be hard to face, but it's always our friend. As the way to healing and wholeness comes, not by avoiding the sin of our lives or by the, avoiding the troubles of the world, but rather by facing them head on, naming them for what they are, and asking God to do what only God can do, shine his healing light into every corner and crack and closet of our lives. This morning, I invite you to consider Psalm 130 with me, because it names the reality of God's character and his care and his coming. And in so doing, I think it gives us a word of hope, especially a word of hope for those who find themselves in the depths. Now, before we do that for a second, for those of you who have children, I want to add one more scripture reading uh, for the children. I have this lovely little book I've been going through with my daughter lately called Psalms for Young Children. And there are Psalm today, 130, actually has a paraphrase in it. Um, there's, a, there's a lovely little picture of someone waiting for the sunrise. Uh, so let me read this for the children that are here, and then I'm going to give them a little creative activity or a creative way of participating while the sermon is going on. Psalm 130 for children. When I have done something wrong, I wait for you to forgive me, God. I am so sure you will comfort me. I believe in you, God. Even more than I believe that tomorrow will come. One more time. When I have done something wrong, I wait for you to forgive me, God. I am so sure that you will comfort me. I believe in you, God. Even more than I believe that tomorrow will come. Now, children, young or not so young children, you are welcome to uh, do a drawing or a creative craft um, over the next 15 or 20 minutes. And I would ask you, can you draw a picture of someone who is awake in the middle of the night? Or can you draw a picture of a sunrise? Someone who is awake in the middle of the night or a sunrise? Psalm 130 is a prayer from the depths. The very first words, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the depths. Everything that is spoken in this psalm, from the, the cries of desperation to the, to the words of hope, are spoken from the depths. In recent days, economists have been writing of the depths of our recession. Politicians have been warning of the depths of the crisis. Doctors have been speaking of the deepening need for medical supplies. Therapists have been warning of the deepening depression that could accompany increased social isolation. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Throughout the Psalms, the language of depth is intended to evoke the image of someone who is floundering and drowning in the open sea. It's a desperate image. So, for example, Psalm 96 opens like this. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the deep. 
I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. It describes a situation, whether it's internally or externally caused, from which a person cannot save themselves. A situation that is outside of a person's competence and control. In the depths, self-help simply will not do, and self-effort simply will not be enough. I think that's why the psalmist is not satisfied with simply stating his case before the Lord or describing his situation. He must have God's ear. He must get God's attention. There's this sense that he will not live if God does not hear him and help him. That is how desperate are the depths. And so in verse 2, he says, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Brothers and sisters, here I think we're presented with an invitation to pray with a boldness and a rawness and an earnest that is earnestness that is rarely the stuff of church worship gatherings and prayer meetings. The psalmist does not mince his word. He does not hold back his feelings. He does not speak in pious platitudes or hushed reverential tones. The psalmist gets in God's face, so to speak. He implores him. He pleads with him. He prays with such an audacity. That's what prayer is like when it comes from the depths. It's neither timid nor passive, but bold and active. I love the phrase that the great 16th century English poet George Herbert used to describe this sort of prayer. He called it reversed thunder. Reversed thunder. What a wonderful phrase for prayer. It's this phrase, actually, that Eugene Peterson picked up on and used as the title of his work on the book of Revelation. Because in the book of Revelation, there's this really poignant moment when the worship of the angels and saints in heaven stops for about 20 minutes. Heaven is silent, and bowls of incense are brought before the throne of the Almighty. Now, in the apocalyptic imagination of Revelation, incense is normally emblematic of a representative of the prayers of God's people on earth. So right in the heart of the book of Revelation, the presence of the praises of heaven are being silenced so that the prayers of earth can be heard. It's a powerful picture of how seriously God takes the needs and the prayers of his people. It's as if Revelation is telling us at the very end of the Bible, God's ear is to the ground. It's the same thing that we experience near the beginning of the Bible in Exodus chapter 3. People crying out in the midst of their oppression, in the depths of oppression, and we hear God hears them. God remembers them. God sees his people, and he knows them. See, brothers and sisters, I think this is good news for the days ahead. American life has been transformed in just a few short weeks, and the next few weeks will likely be even tougher. The depths will likely get even deeper. And Psalm 130 begins, I think, by reassuring us that we can pray with boldness in the depths. Because the voices that come from the depths are the voices to which God's heart is particularly attuned. 
the praises of heaven are silenced so that God can hear the prayers of people from earth. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Now, how is it that God responds to the cries of his people from the depths? How is it that God responds to the voices that he hears? Our psalm goes on to give us two answers. Number one is forgiveness in the present. And number two is full redemption in the future. In verses one to two, the psalmist cries out from the depths. But then right away in verses three and four, he goes on to acknowledge that in the depths, we need forgiveness. If you, O Lord, he says, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You see, sometimes the deepest depths of our lives are those we ourselves help to dig. Our own waywardness, our own pride, our own selfishness. This language of iniquities that the psalmist uses in the Old Testament often shows up in wisdom literature. It's a picture of somebody who comes to a fork in the road, and there's two paths they can walk down. One path is the path of foolishness. It's the path of waywardness and pride and selfishness. And the other path is the path of wisdom, of wholeness, of shalom, of right relatedness. And iniquities is when we choose one path over the other. I think this has something to speak to us in our current moment. You see, the virus is forcing some of us to live in close quarters with each other for much longer and more intense periods than we're used to. And it's forcing others of us to be in a place of social isolation and loneliness for longer periods than we would ever hope for. But I think in both places, we're starting to discover and we'll discover even more that our problem is much deeper than the virus itself. Our lives slow down. As our lives slow down, we will have to come face to face with who we really are in the quiet. As our relationships receive more time, we will have to face the issues that so often get buried underneath the busyness of our lives. You know, some of us may be getting along quite well now, and that's great. But add another month of this, and let's see how we're doing. You see, crises have a way of revealing our inner selves, of exposing our hidden sins, of unearthing the depth of our character, the things that would normally remain hidden amidst the normal conditions and rhythms of life. How we respond in times of need and threat and uncertainty reveals a lot about us. And how we treat others in times of stress and fear and anxiety reveals a lot about us. I mean, just think, for example, with me of the increased filing of divorce cases that China is experiencing in the wake of the coronavirus outbreak. Or, or think with me of how restaurants in the Seattle area and stores in the Seattle area are already boarding up their windows in anticipation of looting. I mean, how, how will we respond in the face of the unknown? How are we responding? How will we relate to one another when we're under pressure? How are we relating? See, in the days ahead, we're, we're not always going to get this right. <laughs> Sometimes 
more time together will mean deeper wounds. And sometimes more isolation will mean deeper addictions. And we're going to need to hear words of forgiveness. With God, there is forgiveness. With God, there is patience. And there is loving kindness. And there is liberating love. With God, there is forgiveness. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Three times in the psalm, the psalmist uses this with Yahweh phrase. With you, there is forgiveness, verse 3. And then two more times in verse 7. With the Lord, there is steadfast love, hesed, covenant love, covenant loyalty. And verse 7, with him is plentiful redemption. That redemption language is Exodus language. So the psalmist is saying that in the depths, we can still experience a with God life. And in the depths, we're brought face to face, not only with the depths of our own character and our own relationships, but also with the depths of God's character and his relationships. He hears our prayers, but he does not mark our iniquities. That is the character of God. And the psalmist says that present experience of God's forgiveness has an eschatological extension. It extends to something even greater in the future. He says in verse 8, there will come a day when God will redeem his people from all their sins, from all their iniquities. I've been thinking about this a little bit um, in the past couple of days. Just thinking about Revelation 21 and 22. How seldom in our lives that we actually think about the future, about where we're heading. But then we get in a situation like this and we find ourselves longing for something different. <laughs> and just thinking about Revelation 21 and 22. That there will come a day when there is a new heavens and a new earth. There will come a day when there is nothing false or unclean in all of creation. There will come a day when there is no more pandemic, when there is no more threat, when there is no more sickness. There will come a day when there is no more mourning because there is no more death. There is no more crying because there is no more pain. There will come a day when the depths are a thing of the past. See, in the depths, the psalmist has one eye on his present experience of forgiveness. And he has another eye on the future redemption that is sure to come because it rests on the steadfast love of the Lord. And in the midst of the depths, he is inhabiting this space between present grace and forgiveness and future grace and full redemption. Which, for me, makes me ask the question, how do we live in that space? How do we live in between the times? According to Psalm 130, by hoping and waiting. Waiting is an active expression of hoping, and hoping is an intensive form of waiting. Verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman in the morning, more than a watchman 
in the morning. Waiting has to be one of the most stretching human experiences. <laughs> waiting for a job, waiting for a diagnosis, waiting for a home, waiting to belong, waiting for an answer, waiting for healing. In every season and circumstance of life, we find ourselves waiting, waiting in some way, shape, or form. And I think the coronavirus has plunged us into a unique kind of corporate experience and season of waiting as well. Yes, action is needed to flatten the curve, to prepare for the days ahead, to care for our neighbors, but we also find ourselves just waiting, waiting to see what will happen, how this will unfold, waiting to see how bad it will get, waiting to see how we will need to come to grips with its implications long-term. There's a lot of helplessness and, and discomfort in the waiting. It's a difficult experience to navigate. And that's why waiting so often becomes an opportunity for, for frantic worrying or for hurried working or for agitated relating or for unhealthy medicating. And social isolation just makes things worse. I mean, think of how easy it is uh, just to become addicted to the, the, the latest news cycles. I've found myself needing to fast from watching and listening to the news on these matters. See, Psalm 130, I think, is inviting us into a season of waiting, but it's to inhabit it in a very particular way. It's a waiting for the Lord that the psalm speaks of. My soul waits for the Lord. I think it, it, what the psalmist is trying to describe is a waiting that has a certain direction. It has a particular orientation towards God and his kingdom. I was speaking with uh, an elderly woman from our congregation a number of days ago, who is living alone in these weeks. And I was asking her, um, how you feeling? How you doing? Uh, is there any way that we can kind of practically care for you in this time? Do you need anything? She said, no, no, I'm fine. It was my birthday yesterday. And lots of people called me and said, happy birthday. And people are taking care of me and these things. I said, okay, well, just let me know if you need anything practical and these sorts of things. And, and before I let, before we kind of got off the phone, she had these words for me. She says, so Jesus, Jordan, you know what I'm praying during this time? It's like, what? She's like, I'm praying that people would know that Jesus is the ultimate person for our lives. And that he's the one we need more than anything else. It just really struck me because I was sitting there asking, like, is there anything I can do for you? Is there anything practically I can offer you? Which isn't a bad thing, but, but she was working on a totally different wavelength. <laughs> she was waiting for the Lord. She had this deep sense at, at 89 years old that Jesus is the ultimate purpose for our lives. That it is for him that we wait in this season. I think this is part of what Lent is all about. It's about fasting as a form of waiting, 
designed to awaken in us this deep realization that this woman at 89 has and gets. My soul waits for the Lord. My whole person waits for the Lord as a watchman for the morning. I couldn't but help of uh, remember those early days of, of having a newborn baby. It's uh, the early days that I call being in the dungeon <laughs> for about the first month or two or three or longer. And I can remember that palpable sense of being awake in the middle of the night with this newborn baby and just longing for the morning to come. I'd be looking out the window, watching for the first glimmer of daylight and watching the kind of minutes on the clock tick away. And it's not that all of a sudden I would be asleep when daylight came or anything would change. It's just that I would know that the light had come and somehow that was comforting. I want to end with two practical questions about how it is that we wait in the depths. Two practical questions about waiting. How does one's soul get oriented towards the Lord in seasons of waiting? How do we get oriented towards the Lord in seasons of waiting? Psalm 130 puts it this way. In his word, I hope. Now, for some of us, that sounds overly trite and simple. <laughs> and, and maybe overly pietistic. But that's how the psalmist says it. In his word, I hope. You see, I, th I think God has designed scripture to give us comfort and direction in times of waiting. Now, friends, is the time to memorize scripture, to tuck, tuck it away in your heart and mind. I think of what Dallas Willard says just at the very beginning of his book, Like Life Without Lack. He, he says memorizing scripture is one of the primary ways in which God seeks to embed his character in us and to renew our hearts and minds in his image. And so I encourage you, um, choose a portion of scripture. I would encourage you to choose a portion that particularly anchors you in God's character or kind of expands your vision of God's purposes in the world. I'm feeling the need in the midst of a narrowing world to have my vision continually expanded. So, so go to Psalm 23 or Psalm 121 or Matthew 5 or or Romans 8, or Revelation 21, choose something and tuck it away in your heart and mind. Let it orient your soul towards the Lord in the midst of your waiting. And then the final question I want to ask is, basically, what is God doing in the waiting? <laughs> How is he forming us in the waiting? There's lots of talk going on right now about how as a society we're going to weather this virus, this storm, in such a way that prepares for life after the storm. It's normally focused on economics. How are we going to get through the health concerns in such a way that our economy is still intact afterwards? But the question I've been asking is, is how are we going to get through this in such a way that our souls are enriched, <laughs> that we are formed in the image of God? And I think something that's, that waiting often does is, is it carves out space in our souls that only God himself can fill. I, I came across this insight from, from a person named Douglas Mc, McCleavy. In a liturgy he wrote on for those experiencing the grief of homesickness. 
I've been thinking about this notion of grief a bit because there was uh, an article published in Harvard Business Review this last week entitled, The Discomfort You're Feeling is Grief. And the author described the grief that we are experiencing not only at an individual, but also at a corporate level. The grief that comes with change, like the loss of normalcy or the fear of economic toll or the loss of connection, but also the grief that we're experiencing that comes from anticipation, the feeling we get about what the future holds when the future seems uncertain. So how will we deal with grief as a nation and as individuals? And how will this shape us in this time of waiting? How will this prepare us for what is to come afterwards? And Douglas writes this, let these sighs in tears, Lord Christ, prepare me for that better gladness that will be mine. Let all your children learn to grieve well in this life, knowing we are not just being homesick. We are letting sorrow carve the spaces in our souls that joy will one day fill. Let me say that again. We are letting sorrow carve the spaces in our souls that joy will one day fill. Oh, Holy Spirit, bless our grief and seal our hearts until that day. Oh, Holy Spirit, bless our grief and seal our hearts until that day. Brothers and sisters, I speak these things to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.